Hello, and welcome to the Take Us Directed podcast. I'm Sarah Allender, Executive Director and Senior Fellow at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. For this episode of Take Us Directed, we are pleased to be joined by Peter Sands, Executive Director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Peter began his tenure as Executive Director in March 2018 and is joining us two days after the high-level meeting on tuberculosis held during the UN General Assembly. We talked to Peter about his first seven months as executive director at the fund, his strategy in the lead up to the sixth replenishment conference, which is set to take place next year in October 2019 in France, and discuss wide ranging issues related to the fund's operations and critical issues in AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. You've been in your position now as executive director of the Global Fund for seven months, came in in March. Can you tell us a little bit about your expectations coming into the job and how those have either been met or maybe been challenged during your initial tenure? Well, I knew it was going to be really exciting. I knew I was going to have to climb a pretty steep learning curve. And those things have definitely been true. I've had to learn an awful lot, and I've still got a lot of stuff that I need to learn. What would be some of my biggest surprises? I think one of the things that has most impressed me has been the role that civil society, that communities of affected people play in the way the Global Fund works, not just in the countries, but also through the governance mechanisms, the CCMs, and also on the board itself. That's a it's a remarkable feature of the Global Fund, not one that I think any other organization has in quite the same way. And I've personally seen that to be true during my time with PEPFAR, just the, the power of civil society and um, also telling truth to power, if you will, within countries and, and up to the multilateral and global. It does mean the board meetings are a little different from the kinds of corporate board meeting that I'm used to. When I, <laughs> when I turned up for my first board meeting in May and realized there were about 250 people in the room, I was a bit like, ooh, this is, this is not what, what I've met before. With a lot of different perspectives, I'm sure. Yeah, vast variety of perspectives, and all of them very strongly held. One of your uh, principal responsibilities as executive director is raising money, and you have the big replenishment coming up uh, next year. What is your approach? You've gotten great political support from President Macron and, and France. Uh, also, India has stepped up to host the, the pre-meeting. What's been your approach in kind of your initial time, and how do you see that uh, evolving up until the actual replenishment conference? Well, we've just launched the process. We had the official launch of our 2018 results report um, in the second week of September, and we did that in Paris. We did it with the Foreign Minister of France, and we used that as an opportunity, in a sense, to kick off the replenishment process, which will reach its culmination on October the 10th in Lille in a replenishment conference, as you say, hosted by President Macron. Look, it's early days yet, but I think the thing that we are feeling good about is that France has stepped up and will be hosting, as you say, with President Macron. India has stepped up to host the preparatory conference. That will take place in early February um, in Delhi. And actually, I don't think we've ever been in the position where more than 12 months ahead of the replenishment conference, we have both the host of the conference itself and the host of the prep conference all signed up, the dates firmed up. So at least from a kind of process point of view, we're in very good shape. 
Now, in terms of the substance of the argument, how are we going to convince people to turn up with what is a very serious amount of money? Um, I think our starting point has to be the fact that the Global Fund works, the fact that if you're putting your own money or your taxpayers' money into the Global Fund, that the partnership of the Global Fund, the ecosystem of the Global Fund delivers. And I think we have a very strong story to tell in terms of the impact on the diseases, on saving lives, and so on. But we also need to demonstrate, and I think this is something that's perhaps a bit different from uh, previous replenishments. This replenishment is in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals. And we have to show how we are not just achieving our mission, but delivering on progress, and particularly on SDG 3, the development goal around health and well-being. Picking up on the SDG point, um, there's been a lot of conversation about um, de-siloing diseases and moving beyond the horizontal to the diagonal, um, moving toward the SDG uh, goals and um, obviously the big burden of non-communicable diseases and the push toward universal health care. Um, so there's been talk, including at the International AIDS Conference and elsewhere, about uh, wanting the Global Fund to move beyond the three diseases and get into the universal health care agenda. How do you feel about that perspective and where do you see the fund going? Well, in some ways it's very kind of flattering to the Global Fund because people look at the fact that the Global Fund has delivered and say, well, if it's delivered on the three diseases, can it deliver on um, other things? Um, we still have a lot of work to do um, on the three diseases. And indeed, one of the key indicators of SDG3 is ending the epidemics of AIDS, TB and malaria by 2030. And that is by no means a slam dunk. We have to overcome some pretty significant challenges to get that done. But I don't think it should be thought of as being done at the expense of the broader journey towards achieving UHC and building strong and resilient health systems. Indeed, we are not going to achieve our objective of ending the epidemics of AIDS, TB and malaria unless we do a lot to make the health systems in the affected countries um, stronger. And likewise, I don't think a UHC um, health system that doesn't effectively protect its people from AIDS, TB and malaria, well, that's, that's not a very effective health system. So I, I, I don't see these objectives in conflict. I see them as being we want both. And, and, and I think people underestimate or we haven't articulated enough how much we are doing in terms of investment in health systems, whether it's community health workers in Afghanistan, it's the whole extension health worker scheme that um, was developed in Ethiopia. We're, we're doing supply chain projects in a dozen countries. We're doing in many more countries things about um, health management information systems, national health accounts, and so on. We're doing things with diagnostic labs. These are all building blocks of strengthening health systems, and it adds up. We're spending about a billion dollars a year on strengthening health systems. Um, and we see that not as a, an extension or a diversion or an addition to our mission. We see it as an integral part of our mission. And I would imagine, too, that translates into the health security agenda as well, not just the UHC or NCD agenda. A, we contribute significantly to health security because we are doing things like putting in place diagnostics, 
surveillance systems, all that kind of thing. But I think we could do a better job of articulating how what we do works with what needs to be done um, to strengthen health security. And I also have um, a fundamental view that if we is if we are going to talk about health security in countries that are affected by endemic infectious diseases, you kind of have to start by talking about health security to include the diseases that are killing people now, to try and get countries to invest to protect themselves from diseases that might have outbreaks and that might kill them seems a bit odd when they're they're seeing many children dying of malaria now. I just think from a, both a moral and a sort of political point of view, that doesn't really make sense. Um, so our concept of health security has to include the things that are affecting and causing death now. And that's also true from a practical point of view, because a lot of the things we are doing about malaria, about HIV, about TB, are the same building blocks that you want to put in place to protect from MERS, Ebola, and so on. In terms of the three diseases themselves, what do you see as the biggest issues right now and the biggest challenges for not only for the fund but for the global community in addressing them in the near term and and into the future? Well, I think the first point is is that a huge amount of progress has been made. If you look at um, uh, death rates... Um, in the countries in which the Global Fund operates. In HIV and malaria, they've fallen by over 40%, and by TB, by over 20%. Um, But there is still work to do. And just sort of skipping quickly through the three diseases, the couple of challenges in HIV, I think, are a particular concern and that we really need to crack if we want to achieve our objectives. One is infection rates among adolescent girls and young women. The biggest absolute number of newly infected people are adolescent girls and young women. And to reduce that, we have to go beyond pure biomedical interventions to tackling some of the deep structural gender equalities, issues of sexual violence, issues of economic disempowerment, educational disadvantage. The other uh, issue in HIV that that we need to continue to be very focused on are the issues around key populations, often in low-middle-income um, countries and, and in poor countries, and where people, where we've got sort of concentrated epidemics, which are fundamentally driven by a set of human rights barriers to access to health. And these are affecting key populations, such as men who have sex with men, sex workers, transgender, people who inject drugs. And so we are increasingly involved in some of the issues around tackling those human rights barriers to health. If I turn to malaria, there's basically two different stories going on with malaria. You've got a number of countries, quite a significant number of countries, which are really making good progress towards elimination. We saw Paraguay this year be announced as malaria-free, and we will see over the next few years, all being well, a significant number of countries being able to uh, announce the same, and that's a great achievement. But the highest burden countries, and I'm talking particularly in Africa, although there's parts of India which are heavily affected as well, um, the highest burden countries, we aren't making that progress. We are saving more lives every year, but there's far too much transmissions going on, far too many um, cases. And that's what we've, that I see as the big challenge, is we've got to get more traction um, with 
in the highest burden. And that's where I'm working very closely with the Presidential Malaria Initiative, with RBM, with WHO, with um, the Gates Foundation on making sure that we have a very, very focused and effective strategy um, for those highest burden countries. On TB, TB is, if we're candid, the one of the three we've made least progress. And you can see that in the fact that now it is the infectious disease that kills most people. 1.6 million people died of TB um, in 2017. And that's just, just far too many for a disease that we can prevent and we can cure. So the big challenge in TB is how do we close the gap between the roughly 10 million or so people who fall ill with TB every year and the only 6 million or so people that we diagnose and treat. You cannot end an epidemic if 40% of the people who are falling ill are not being diagnosed and treated. And and so the big thing that we are focused on, and, you know, there's other aspects, and we can talk about MDR, TB, and so on, but it, at, at a high level, we've got to close that gap. And we've got to have, we have got to be supporting countries who are committed to finding diagnosing, treating, so that we get much, much better coverage. And then we can bring, begin to bring the epidemic down. We're recording this uh, two days following the high-level meeting on tuberculosis at the UN General Assembly. Can you share with us your takeaways, observations from your participation at the meeting? I think that the high-level meeting and all the side events around it actually has been very powerful in galvanizing a level of political attention and energy around TB that is absolutely what we need. Because frankly, TB has been a bit the poor cousin. It's had less money deployed against it, less research, less political visibility, less civil society involvement. It's, it just hasn't had anything like the amount of focus that, say, either HIV or malaria has had. And so this was an opportunity to uh, change that. The real test, the acid test, will be what happens in the weeks and months ahead. Governments have signed up to various commitments, particularly around closing the gap, finding the people who are falling ill but not being um, diagnosed and treated. We need civil society, we need parliamentarians, we need the media to hold governments accountable to making that happen. We do need a step change on TB. Just, you know, the current trajectory is simply not good enough. Going back to the replenishment, but also to the the high-level meeting in terms of the the political commitment that was there, there's obviously a limitation to what governments can and will do in terms of funding. And... We haven't tapped into the corporate sector in the same way that or in in the way that that many would like to see in terms of um, leveraging their resources, leveraging their capacity, their equity, their skills. Um, You come from the corporate sector in terms of banking. What's been your approach um, so far? or Where do you see yourself going in terms of corporate engagement uh, in the future? So to split my answer into a couple of parts here. Um, First of all, are there opportunities to... Uh, in a sense, find new sources of money in tackling the TB challenge? And the answer is yes. We can we can be creative in various ways. Um, and there's a good example. For example, uh, India, Prime Minister Modi has made a massive commitment. Uh, to, his aim is to 
NTB in India by 2025. Now, India is 25% of the world's TB, so that would be a fantastic thing to achieve. We are putting a significant amount of global fund money behind that aim. The Indian government um, is putting significant money. But we're also doing, and this is an example of a kind of innovative structure, we're working with the Indian government and the World Bank to do a kind of loan buy-down structure where effectively we subsidize the cost of um, a loan. Now, and if it works, it'll, reduce over four, it'll release over $400 million for um, tackling TB um, in India. So that's a, that's a, a big um, addition. More broadly, in terms of engaging with the private sector, um, I think there are different elements um, of this. Um, for TB specifically, one of the biggest challenges is to make sure that we engage private sector health providers in the effort to close the gap between those falling ill with TB and those actually being diagnosed and treated. In many of the countries in which TB is most prevalent, over half the people are getting their treatment from the private sector, not from the government system. So a plan to attack TB that only engages the government system just isn't going to do the job. So we need to find ways to draw in, incentivize, and make the private sector part of the solution. And, it, and generally speaking, I think we need to be very open and engaged with the private sector where they can bring resources, capabilities, ways of influencing, advocacy, and can become part of the fight against the three diseases and the broader agenda towards SDG3. We were just together at a, another event, and you talked quite a bit about data as a big limitation. Can you speak to that a little bit, maybe share what your observations that you shared earlier uh, in terms of particularly you noted during your time at Standard Chartered, being able to have in 24 hours' time um, critical information about uh, sales and profits, et cetera, uh, but that we lag behind by sometimes 12 months, sometimes longer, on health data. Can you speak to your, your thoughts on that? There are a couple of dimensions of data that I think are really, really important uh, and where we have to raise our game. The first is, frankly, the speed with which we get it. Um, we seem to accept that it's okay to wait for a year to get outcomes data, how many people caught the disease, how many people died, and so on. That's just far too long, particularly with the diseases that can change quite rapidly. And malaria is a disease where you get quite a lot of both seasonal volatility but also quite rapid responses to interventions or lack of intervention. And we need, we need the frequency of the outcomes data and then the, the lag between to be faster and the lag between when the period ends and when we actually get the information. And that, I think, would have a massive impact on the way we manage our malaria program. We could become much more dynamic um, and responsive to different challenges. The other dimension of data that we uh, need to improve greatly on is disaggregation. So we need more granularity so that we really understand the gender dynamics of particular diseases, the age dynamics of them, the socioeconomic impact. The, um, with things like malaria, which is very geographically determined, we need very specific ge geospatial um, data so that we can be targeting our interventions 
um, as effectively as possible. You know, with scarce resources, you want to focus them in the places with the people that they, makes most difference. And at the moment, our data is a bit too blunt to enable us to do that as well as we could. One last question, uh, going back to adolescent girls and young women. You, you mentioned the critical challenge in HIV, addressing them. This has been a big area of focus for us within the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I know Global Fund is working closely with PEPFAR on DREAMS, but it also has launched the, uh, the HER, the HIV Epidemic Response Initiative, and you've got some bold targets for reaching adolescent girls and young women. Can you tell us a little bit about... Uh, what the objectives are and uh, the goals for that initiative. My starting point here is that if we don't make rapid and significant progress in reducing infection rates among adolescent girls and young women, particularly in Eastern and Southern Africa, we simply won't end the epidemic. And we will also have allowed to happen a real social and health disaster. So it's an absolute imperative to sharply reduce infection rates. And indeed, our target is to achieve a 58% reduction in 13 countries. We are working very, very closely with PEPFAR, who pioneered a whole set of new approaches through the DREAMS initiative. And certainly, her HIV epidemic response is designed to complement that by drawing in private sector partners. And we're drawing them in partly for financial resources, but partly because they bring different capabilities, ways of reaching out to and influencing. So Unilever with the Dove brand has ways of communicating with young women that are different ways and mechanisms um, than you would have as a health institution. Um, and so by drawing in private sector partners who have this kind of range of capabilities, influence and communication channels and things, I think we can work on a challenge that goes way beyond what you can simply tackle with sort of conventional biomedical tools. Because what we're talking about here is a problem that it has its roots in really deep structural gender inequalities. We've got sexual violence, huge issues of economic disempowerment, huge issues of economic disadvantage. So we are going to have to work with a different set of partners and be prepared to do different sorts of things. And that's exactly what we are doing. I mean, one of the um, programs we've got at the moment um, involves giving girls cash to stay on in school because the evidence is pretty compelling, they are safer when they are in school. There is no silver bullet here, but it's absolute imperative. We're going to have to work with a different set of partners, including corporate and education partners. The cooperation between PEPFAR and the Global Fund is critical, as it is with the, um, the governments of the countries um, concerned. We need to make this work. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Take Is Directed, featuring Peter Sands, Executive Director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. We invite you to subscribe to the Take Is Directed podcast so you never miss one of our latest episodes. For more information on upcoming events and recent publications from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, please visit CSIS.org and visit our program page.